today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An international crisis is uh, starting to form right now because of uh, uh, Canada's stand with a human rights uh, situation in Saudi Arabia. As a result, the Saudis have expelled the Canadian ambassador, uh, frozen all new businesses with Canada over criticism that the Canadian government placed on the arrest of women's rights activists. So where is this all going and how has this started? We're going to cover this from a couple of different angles. Uh, first of all, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Jeff Semple, who is, of course, the European Bureau Chief for Global News. Jeff, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, good morning, Bill. Listen, I guess the obvious question a lot of us have right now, Jeff, is uh, there there have been situations in the past where Canadian governments and, and others, frankly, have uh, made comments about, about civil rights and about uh, human rights activities in other countries. How did this one get blown out of, to the extent that it has? I mean, some are suggesting blown out of proportion, but uh, the Saudis obviously have reacted pretty strongly to this. Why? Yeah, they have. And, and as you say, Bill, I mean, I, I think the consensus really is that it, it is not unusual for Saudi Arabia to receive criticism for its human rights record, including criticism from some Western countries, including Canada. But the reaction to that criticism this time from the Sunni kingdom has really stunned the world. It appears to have all started with this tweet from Global Affairs Canada that was posted on Friday that called for the release of all peaceful human rights activists in Saudi Arabia, including Raif Badawi, a name that might be familiar to some of your listeners. Badawi is in jail for insulting Islam. He's a blogger. He was sentenced to, I believe, 10 years in prison, a thousand lashes. And Badawi's wife and three children actually live in Quebec, and they recently received Canadian citizenship. Now, Badawi's imprisonment has been the subject of protests over the years. Uh, and I think, as I say, the Sunni kingdom, not, not, not unusual for them to receive criticism about him, but this time their reaction was quite explosive. On Sunday night, they, at local time, they announced that they were expelling Canada giving him 24 hours to pack up and get out of the country. They announced that they were freezing all future trade and business relationships and deals. And it's not clear, Bill, whether that might include that controversial $15 billion deal that the Canadian government recently allowed, $15 billion worth of light armored military vehicles heading to Saudi Arabia that reportedly represents around 3,000 Canadian jobs, many of them not far from you in London, Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, and the situation has just escalated even further since then. We've heard from the... We seem to be having technical difficulties with, uh, with Jeff Semple from uh, London today. Uh, we'll try to hook up with him again if we can in just a couple of seconds. Uh, the obvious concern here is is actually multi-layered, when you, as Jeff was just explaining to us, uh, because of the implications. Uh, financial, obviously, is a big part of this because of some of the trade deals that the Saudis have said that they're going to freeze right now. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to cancel them, but uh, there is some concern, obviously, about jobs, and, and Jeff's point is well taken. That, uh, that even in London, Ontario, just down the highway from us, there was some concern about the impact that a Saudi nixing of that deal could actually have uh, on that deal, because we're talking about 3,000 jobs uh, that uh, were going to be created because of some of the things that were signed. Uh, and, and the concern, I guess, and the shock that I think a lot of us have is simply because of the, uh, the, the way in which the Saudis have responded to what has gone on here. Uh, and and this is rather bizarre, really, when you look at the circumstances uh, that have resulted in this. And and this is not unusual. I mean, other countries, Canada, in, the, in as well as others, have complained about some of the human rights uh, concerns in Saudi Arabia over the last number of years, as they have in other countries like China and others. And governments have usually uh, gotten a little upset about it, and they get a little ticked off about it. We get that. But uh, to react in the way that they have in, in such an extreme fashion is, uh, is uh, obviously a bit of a shock, I think, to an awful lot of us. Have we got Jeff again? Okay, I think we're back with Jeff Semple. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Sorry about the technical glitch there. Uh, but uh, as, as you were just explaining, I, I guess the initial reaction a lot of us have over here is, is why such a severe reaction to this in the past? Because this is not unusual. But uh, as you articulated, though, when you were talking uh, with the folks of Global about this on Global National the other day, uh, this is this is really kind of significant because Saudi seems to be flexing their muscles a lot more recently on international affairs. 
Yeah, they are indeed. And I think, you know, if you're looking for a reason why, you don't have to look any further than the increasingly aggressive and unpredictable Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who has come out of his father's shadow over the past couple of years, cast himself as a reformer. Remember, it was Mohammed bin Salman who just recently lifted that longtime ban on women being allowed to drive in the Sunni kingdom. He has opened up the first movie theaters and allowed music concerts and you know those small gestures albeit symbolic in large part though perhaps not so much for the women drivers but the others really raised hopes i think for many observers in the western world that Mohammed bin Salman, this crown prince, might really be the reformer that he he said he was. And he went on a big Western charm offensive, visiting Donald Trump and various European countries. But then, you know, he's talking reform on one hand, but on the other, we have seen this crackdown. And, you know, on, on simultaneously, as he was lifting the ban on women's drivers, he was also arresting a number of women's rights activists he you know has has cracked down on countries including qatar and lebanon and analysts say that you know if he wants to send a message to the western world that that he won't tolerate this sort of criticism canada makes a relatively easy target it's easy to sever the saudi's ties with canada it's not really going to affect saudi arabia very much the two countries have a trade agreement have, have trade together that's usually worth about four billion dollars Canadian you know, much of that military equipment um, so I think the Saudis are probably hoping to send a message and using Canada as an example to other Western countries that they won't tolerate this type of criticism and you know in the past there you know there had been some suggestion that some of Canada's Western allies might come to our defense here but it appears that that is not going to happen particularly not from the United States the Trump administration has been cozying up to the Saudi Crown Prince of course they have a common enemy in Iran and the State Department in the United States said yesterday that they plan to stay out of this. How much is that relationship uh, with the United States and Saudis emboldened the Saudis to do this? Because as, as you mentioned, Jeff, I mean, under the Obama administration, uh, there was some pretty harsh criticism about the Saudi regime at that stage. And, and uh, it, it wasn't a very strong relationship between the two countries, but, but it just seems as, as if this relationship that Trump has struck up with the Saudi prince especially uh, has maybe given these guys a little bit of wind beneath their wings to try to, to flex their muscle a little bit more. Yeah, and I think that that's the, the consensus from what we've heard from analysts is that that's a very fair assessment that the, you know, the Saudis have been emboldened by the Trump administration. They've been working with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, remember, on this peace plan for Israel and the Palestinians that he's been trying to push forward, among other things. And we've heard Donald Trump just this morning tweeting about Iran and, you know, saying that the United States will not be doing business with anyone who does business with Iran. Strong words as usual from the U.S. president. But, you know, we talk Talk about you know having common enemies. Iran is, of course, you know a fierce enemy of the Saudis. So I think you know they they have aligned interests, and I think that has emboldened the Saudis to speak out against a country like Canada. And it's worth remembering that you know this is happening at a time when Trump and Trudeau haven't exactly been getting along since that G7 summit when Donald Trump came down very strongly on Trudeau's comments about the fact that Canada wouldn't be pushed around on trade. So you know, on one, on one hand, you have the Trump administration building closer ties with the Saudis, while at the same time in a bit of a diplomatic spat with the Canadians in the midst of these NAFTA negotiations. So I think that has certainly strengthened the Saudis' hands, and I think that this Crown Prince, Mohammed bin, bin Salman, has shown that he is not afraid to be aggressive here, and he feels like, you know, any damage done to the economy through this dispute with Canada is worth sending a message to other Western countries to stay out of Saudi's business. Jeff Simple, European Bureau Chief, of course, with Global News. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. We'll be watching for your report, of course, on Global Nationals tonight. Thanks for this. Great. Thanks, Bill. Uh, we, we want to carry this on from an economic standpoint as well because th there's a big part of this. And, and I think the, the news of, about the Saudi reaction to this is, is what shocked an awful lot of people simply because of the se serious economic impact that this could have. And, and again, I want to stress uh, that contracts have not been canceled as of yet. But, I mean, when you look at the reaction that the Saudis have done here, uh, of course, uh, you know, first of all, booting our ambassador out of there. Second of all, uh, actually recalling foreign students who are now going to school here 
in Canada and actually trying to relocate them in other universities and other parts of the world anywhere but Canada. That seems to be the reaction right now. Uh, and, of course, obviously the concern about what may happen with some of those trade deals. And uh, it's interesting about the uh, the Saudi the arms deal that uh, the Canada and the Saudis had struck some time ago because it was very controversial. Uh, a number of people chastised the government at the time for even going ahead with the deal simply because of the human rights violations that were running rampant. And, of course, especially when it came to, to women in Saudi Arabia, and uh, the government took a lot of heat for that, and now it looks as if the deal may be in jeopardy as a result. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Canada versus Saudi Arabia situation uh, causing a great deal of concern, obviously, because of the reaction of the Saudis uh, from some tweets that uh, came from Foreign Affairs. And, of course, uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland has weighed in on this as well. When it comes to the broader relationship with Saudi Arabia, uh, our diplomats have asked procedural questions today, and we're waiting for answers on how uh, Saudi Arabia intends to go forward with the relationship. Well, it's all up in the air right now and causing a great deal of concern from an economic standpoint as well as a human rights perspective. Joining us to uh, give her perspective on this is Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at uh, Carleton University. Stephanie, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Are you, sh- are you surprised by this reaction by the Saudis? Um, a little bit. I have to com- look, just to confess, like it was not what I was expecting in the middle of a holiday weekend. <laughs> you have this late-breaking foreign policy news. That's not typically how uh, things operate. But um, what we do know is that Saudi Arabia has recently um, been, um, you know, there's been a change in leadership there. So it's now a younger king. He's kind of a millennial. And, um, you know, he's not the king yet, but he's definitely in charge. Um, his name is um, Mohammed bin Salman. And um, he is very sensitive to criticism. We have seen not just Canada, but earlier this year, um, I believe, the Swiss and the German uh, basically governments have been criticized for saying things about you know Saudi's uh, very brutal war in Yemen, uh, as well as other human rights issues. But uh, they definitely have taken it another like a, a pretty big step here in terms of its relations uh, with Canada. So um, you know. I think to a large extent we kind of look at this as Canadians and think, oh, my goodness, what happened? What did we do? But the reality is there's a lot going on here regionally and domestically. And if this really was a message to Canadians, I don't think they would have put it out in the middle of a long holiday weekend uh, when most of us were probably either sitting around a campfire or a barbecue or something. Um, uh, they would have probably waited until this morning. So uh, it, this is probably a message to uh, Saudi Arabia's regional allies, or, or if you can call them that, um, as well as its own domestic critics that, look, no criticism whatsoever is going to be tolerated. But this is not the first time that Canada and other nations, for that matter, have commented about civil rights and human rights issues in Saudi Arabia. Why this time such an, uh, well, what some people would call an overreaction? Well, I think it's a partially because of the new government that's been put in place. Uh, it's it's very sensitive time. They are going through a series of reforms. I mean, we you know recently they've started allowing women to drive. They've put in movie theaters again. So there's that aspect of it again. But also, I think you know the leader is also just very. He feels he, maybe he's in a precarious position. Um, he took uh, a lot of the people who could have been his rivals and uh, basically kidnapped them and put them in the hotel for several months to make sure that they were kind of out of the picture, and a lot of them have subsequently been retired, and I use that term in quotation marks. So Mm -hmm. there's been some really strange politics going on in Saudi Arabia, uh, frankly. So again, I think we have to look at this through kind of almost a domestic lens in that case. Um, But also I think we have to realize, you know, Canada kind of doesn't mean very much in Saudi Arabia. We don't have a large presence there. Um, our daily, uh, sorry, our, our yearly trade with Saudi Arabia is about that which we do with the United States in one day, right? So, I mean, we don't really have a large economic relationship. And I think, you know, the Saudis looked at this and realized, um, 
you know, they can, they can make a very loud statement here without a huge sacrifice. But also, you know, the fact is we've seen Saudi Arabia engage in a lot of very reckless foreign policy decisions without thinking through the consequences recently. So, um, you know, I, I don't think we should be that surprised, uh, even if we are somewhat offended by the, the tone of the discussion um, and the uh, nature of the kind of criticism that they're throwing back at us. But there are economic consequences to this, and the one we were referencing Obviously, Stephanie was the was the, the 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 rather controversial deal with the Saudis, of course, to sell military equipment uh, that the government took a lot of heat for when that was announced some time ago. That's up in the air right now, and uh, that could have a significant impact, not necessarily on our national economy, but certainly uh, locally. I mean, even in London, Ontario, I think about three thousand jobs were, would be impacted if that contract got canceled. Yeah, and I think we're still waiting to hear what the full impact of the uh, Saudi government's decision is. I believe the um, specific language that they've used is all new investments um, into Canada. Yeah. So are they, con- are, are they considering this new investment? Uh, we don't really know. In the first instance, um, there's, you know, this isn't new. This deal has been going on since, I believe, at least 2014 when it's been talked about. Um, so, you know, I, could, I, I imagine there's a lot of very anxious people right now in southwestern Ontario, and I, I understand that. Um, but I don't think we've been given an answer yet um, as to what the future of that deal is going to be. I have heard some analysts suggest, and I don't personally have any evidence to, to back this up, but that, you know, the Saudi economy isn't what it once was. And, you know, there's oil, lower oil prices for some time. So the state revenue has been kind of uh, depleted over a, a period of time. Um, at least since uh, really the kind of beginning of, of, of this decade. So, you know, have the Saudis actually been struggling to find the money to actually pay for the deal, which is not insubstantial. It's, 50, it's worth $15 billion over a number of years. So, um, you know, there, there could also be some financial pressure that the Saudis are feeling, and maybe this is one way of getting out of it. But it, it's really too early to say what's going to happen. Uh, you know, they are, fa- they are fighting a war in Yemen right now, a very brutal and the bloody one. So whether or not they still need this equipment is, uh, I guess we'll find out this week. Uh, interesting to see how this is going to roll out and just what the implications are going to be on this. And uh, Christia Freeland obviously has her hands tied uh, trying to do NAFTA in one hand and now trying to assuage uh, the concerns of the Saudis. Stephanie, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for the time today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, of course, at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, petition in favor of the Basic Income Project uh, has reached 15,000 signatures over the long weekend, uh, which indicates to an awful lot of people that there was uh, broad support for this program when it was uh, put together as a pilot project, of course, by the previous Ontario government. Uh, interesting, as, as an adjunct to that, is the piece in uh, the Toronto Star by uh, Tom Walkham that says Doug Ford is channeling, channeling, channeling rather, Mike Harris by declaring war on Ontario's poor. Uh, you may remember, of course, that when Mike Harris uh, and the Common Sense Revolution took over this province back in 1995, uh, he immediately cut social service rates, uh, simply uh, maintaining at th- that time that uh, he th- I think the number he used was one-third of all the people on social assistance were just scamming the system. There was nothing ever to back that up, of course, and, and, and absolutely no proof of that, but Harris said it and his acolytes believed it, and bingo, there we have so Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. He joins us to talk about some of the implications. Uh, Greg, to have you in here today. Thanks so much for this. Hey, Bill. Good to see you back. Hey. I had uh, I had a long weekend, but a little bit different than some people. Uh, so. You've had a long week. <laughs> I've had a long week. Since yeah, this announcement came down. And yeah. I, I remember a discussion that I had with you during the provincial election campaign uh, about this, this project, of course. And you said, well, you know, there's going to be a change in government, but they did promise they were going to continue, see this thing through, and then evaluate it. And we took them on their word. Yeah. That was a mistake. Yeah, and certainly pilot participants did as well. They promised not once, but twice during the election campaign in April in the Toronto Star, and then in May on CBC, that they would keep the pilot going, and and they were looking forward to seeing the results and uh, finding out what the data said. So the decision last week uh, came as a shock to local basic income pilot participants and participants in the town of Lindsay and participants in Thunder Bay. And people were feel they were thrown under the bus by, by this um, provincial government's deception. Talk to us about the human cost of this. And, and I, this is important because I know that some people simply look at this as a cost-cutting measure. And, well, they've got to cut the fat off this. Uh, and, and this is not the first government that's done this. 
But but let's talk about this because you've you've on pre- previous programs actually introduced us to some of the people that were involved in this program, yeah. and we heard some of their stories. Uh, some of them, as you say, have decided to go back to school to upgrade their skills so they can get better employment and actually lift themselves up. I mean, there seem to be an awful lot of positive things going on. What what does this announcement do to these people? Yeah, and it's it's really been a tragedy for a lot of people. Um, they had put their faith in the government, and, and now they're at a loss to figure out what to do. Um, the plans right now, from what we've heard, are, are to keep the basic income pilot running in August at least. We don't know what happens beyond that. Um, So people aren't sure what's going to happen to their housing, uh, to their plans for the future if they have enrolled in school. And I know many of the pilot participants did plan to go back to school in September. Um, I I, I think the more uh, immediate crisis for people is probably around housing, though. Many people use the basic income pilot to stabilize their housing, maybe move from a place that might not have been terribly safe or wasn't accessible and uh, and moved into a place uh, that they knew they could be there for three years to stabilize their housing. Um, people have entered into tenancy agreements with landlords that they can't get out of now. And so I, I heard from one young participant um, who is working with Children's Aid Society to try to get uh, try to get her children back because she didn't have adequate housing. Um, so she used the basic income pilot to uh, to stabilize that housing. She's paying $900 a month uh, on rent now. She's going to be forced to go back onto Ontario Works, uh, which only provides a maximum of $721 total for rent and food and, and all the other things you need in life. So not only is she losing her housing potentially, uh, there's a very good chance she can't get her kids back either. There's another story to this that that I think is very much germane to this discussion that's not getting a whole lot of uh, attention, but I think it's it's very relevant to what's going on. Not only did they announce that they were going to cut this program, but they also have rolled back a couple of the other uh, programs that uh, the previous government put in place. One of them, of course, was the clawback situation, that if you are on social assistance uh, in the way it used to be, that if you went and got a job doing something else and you made a hundred bucks or whatever it was, that hundred bucks was clawed back from your, your your check, and the government said, "No, we're not going to do that anymore because we want to give you an opportunity to try to to better yourselves and do that." Mm-hmm. Now, this government, the Ford government, saying that we're not going to do that anymore. They well, they put it on hold. They haven't canceled it. They just said they're not they're not going to implement the program at this time. Uh, that's going to be somewhat problematic because it really just kind of pushes people back down into this this spectrum that they're in right now, where you can't get yourselves out, you can't better yourself, you can't make yourself into a better situation. Oh, absolutely, Bill. And when you're dealing with uh, dire poverty, it's really impossible to move on with the other things you need to do in your life. Um, social assistance rates today are, are so low that uh, people, you know, as I just referenced in, in the example I gave, um, can't afford to to cover their housing and, and pay for food, um, let alone getting a telephone so a potential employer can call them back for a job if, if they go out for a job interview. So the 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 barriers the government has put in place really over the last 20 years have just made it impossible uh, for people on social assistance to escape that. That's why my colleague Laura Katari from the Roundtable and a number of other uh, people who have been doing work on social assistance got together over the last 18 months and made a number of recommendations to the provincial government around how social assistance should be reformed. Uh, It was a really strong report. I think probably the most far-reaching recommendation we've seen on social assistance in a generation. And unfortunately, that's on hold. Uh, You know, the the government cancelled the proposed increase to social assistance rates uh, of 3% and instead is only providing uh, 1.5%, which is barely inflation. And it's for people, uh, just really disheartening, uh, knowing there's 40,000 people here in Hamilton who rely on either Ontario Works or the Ontario Disability Support Program, another 900,000 people across the province who, who are basically trapped in poverty because of government's unwillingness to fix the system. But but this is predicated, and, and let's cut to the quick here, this is predicated on the fact that governments uh, create this impression and that, that a lot of people seem to buy into that these are scammers. The people that are on social assistance are just a bunch of bums. They don't want to do anything to improve themselves, uh, and, and they just want to sit there and, and pick up government checks every couple of weeks and spend it on beer and big screen TVs. Uh, and and that, that 
perception, Tom, is, has been there since 1995, yeah. and it continues today. Yeah, and it, it's unfortunate. It's not reality, and, and people will say, well, I know a neighbor who is in this circumstance. Well, fine. There, there's going to be a few in any segment of society. Give me a handful of, of CEOs, and we're going to find people who try to bilk the system as well. And, and there were a lot of them that resulted in the economic recession. Well, I used the Harris example, yeah. I mean, where he said 30% of the people on social assistance are scamming the system. That's not true. I mean, no. I, I think the actual number is about 2.5% as, yeah. as opposed to 30%. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was a lie that was basically thrown out there to try to justify the government program. And, and clearly there are still some people that believe this. They talk about a poverty industry. Uh, but they don't really talk to the people that are involved in this. They don't talk to the people that are trying to work two jobs to try to pay their rent and to exactly. feed their kids at the same time. And that's why basic income was such an exciting possibility. Uh, two-thirds of the basic income enrollees were actually working. They were going out doing everything we tell them to do. Um, they're working maybe multiple part-time jobs, just not earning enough at those jobs to make ends meet. I heard from one over the weekend... Um, Adrian, who, who, you know, is working uh, as much as she possibly can and looking after her kids, uh, it was taking her an hour and a half to walk to work because she couldn't afford the bus. The basic income basically allowed her uh, to take the bus and spend more time at home with her family. Um, she was still working. Um, as are two-thirds of the basic income participants. Um, and, and so for them, it's really discouraging uh, to hear some of these ugly stereotypes about people being lazy. They're not. People want to get back involved. They want to go back to school. They want to upgrade their skills. They want to get better jobs. They want to contribute to society. I, here's a political question for you. You've been following this for quite some time. Why do governments, when they get into these austerity pushes, uh, always seem to pick on low-income people and say, those are the ones we're going to take? I mean, you know, the Trump administration has done it. Others have done this. And and, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw laurels at, at the, the wind government for, because, you know, they, they tried to do some things. And, okay, I give them credit for that. But, I mean, the, the, the rates that they were actually paying out for social assistance and people that are on disability checks were still woefully inadequate and have been for quite some time. As a matter of fact, even the proposed increase that the wind government had talked about a, a few months ago still wouldn't bring them up to the, where it was in 1995 when Harris made those cuts. That's right. Yeah, and but 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 they seem to be the target every time governments want to save money. It's well, we're going to cut social assistance. Yeah, and and people on low incomes uh, don't have the financial resources to fight back. Often, um, they're often committed, uh, to, you know, to to raising families and and looking after their day to day crises. So it. It, it makes it very difficult to fight the system. Um, but this weekend, I, I was really amazed by the support we've been seeing for basic income pilot participants. We, uh, along with the Basic Income Canada Network, launched an online petition on Friday. And uh, as of this morning, it already had 16,000 online signatures. So the people, I think, are, are starting to realize um, that we all need to stand together against these types of government decisions. And, uh, you know, we saw, we saw what happened in the city of Toronto a couple of weeks ago with some of the decisions there. Uh, last week, it was the provincial government hitting Hamilton and, and its most vulnerable members. Who's going to be next? We don't know. But I think it just makes it important that we band together and, and speak with a unified voice against these types of cuts. And, and by the way, for those that want to characterize this program, this idea about the, the basic income as one of these left-wing wacko uh, policies, uh, the whole concept of this was developed by Hugh Siegel, who was a conservative. Yeah. I mean, he was a senator, obviously, but I mean, he worked at, at federal and provincial for the conservative party for years and years and years. And this was his brainchild. He's been pushing this for years. This was a conservative that was doing this because they understood that this is actually going to help people in the long run and help the economy in the long run. Yeah. And he has been the most critical voice against this decision out there. Uh, he, he spoke very passionately the other day about, uh, about the ill-conceived decision to cut this program uh, in, in really halfway through its first year. Uh, we hadn't had the data in, but people were already enrolled. They were promised uh, that they could participate. And, and obviously people are, are feeling overwhelmed now. And so it's great that we have uh, strong advocates like uh, Senator Hugh Siegel standing out up for it. We've had federal cabinet ministers speaking out as well. And uh, I, th I think 
the more voices we bring uh, to the reality that that's facing basic income participants over the next few months, I, I think the more opportunity we'll have to either get the provincial government to um, to change its mind and uh, and reinstitute the basic income pilot for the full uh, period that it promised it would, or we'll look at other options, and, and there are other options on the table. Yeah, but those other options, I mean, let's talk about the implications this is going to have, because this is not just, okay, we're going to slash this, hey, I make $100,000, so I really don't care, it doesn't impact me. It does. Yeah. This is going to have an impact on property taxes, because the cities, the municipalities that are going to be impacted by this are going to have to pick up the slack here. Yeah, exactly. And um, so Lindsay is a small town in eastern Ontario, which was also a pilot community, one of the other three pilot communities. And for them, it, it's been absolutely devastating because uh, there were 2,000 people participating in that community in a population of about 20,000. So the economic benefits to the town as a whole uh, were really, really profound. The um, the past president of the Chamber of Commerce I was speaking to yesterday out in Lindsay, and uh, yeah, he was saying this is going to have a really detrimental impact on the local economy. They are all getting together today in the local park in Victoria Park in uh, in Lindsay to, to rally against these cuts. So, uh, you know, I, I think we recognize here in a larger city like Hamilton that maybe the economic impact of basic income won't be quite as 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 profound as as it is in a smaller town um, because we had a thousand participants but it's still important and it's critical absolutely critical for those people who are turning those their lives around and making investments but we've talked about some of the challenging neighborhoods in this community uh, where people are having a tough time trying to crawl out of the, this economic quagmire that they find themselves in and it's not just because they're lazy. It's that, that, that's a ridiculous, I, I think, uh, you know, prototype that people have put out there. Uh, these are people, some of them, of course, are on disability, can't work full-time yeah. for a number of different reasons. Uh, others are trying to improve themselves. And as you mentioned, going back to school to try to increase uh, your, your, your capability, your workability is, is a great idea. But if you've got a job and you've got to pay your rent, you've got to feed your family, I mean, it's pretty difficult to say I'm going back to school. This is what enabled these people to do this. We we just seem to always catch ourselves with short-term political thinking. This is a way we're going to save a couple of million dollars, but we don't look down the road and say, what's this going to cost us down there? And and uh, I, I would have thought with what happened in the mid-1990s that we would have learned from that, but apparently not. Yeah, and I, I guess not. And as you as you recall, Bill, because you had a couple of guests in, in studio in May when we uh, hosted the North American Basic Income yep. Congress here in Hamilton, this is a pilot that was really being watched from around the world. We had... Uh, we had guests from uh, all over the continent and, and even further than that coming to Hamilton because they wanted to find out about how this pilot is rolling out. Just over the last few weeks, we've had um, media from uh, Japan, from South Korea, uh, from the United Kingdom, um, because this really could potentially be a critical social policy of the 21st century. And and if we don't test it, if we don't see what some of the bugs are in the system, uh, how are we ever going to roll it out on a, on a wider scale? And, and so that's really what this basic income opportunity presented, not only the opportunity to help a group of people with income security, but really getting the data we need to find out whether this will be an important social policy of the future. As we see more automation happening in the workplace, are people going to have the jobs today or tomorrow that they have today? Um, we'll need some sort of buffer for people if, uh, if people aren't getting enough hours and aren't getting enough work, and basic income could provide that. You used a, in a very important word, I think, in this discussion a couple of minutes ago, and that's reform. And, and you've talked about this, and others have talked about this, about social assistance reform in this province. And that was part of the rationalization that, the, that uh, Minister McLeod used when they made this announcement last week. Well, we want to reform the system. Uh, their, their tact seems to be, we're going to destroy this, and then we're going to come back with what we think is going to be a better system. Yeah. Uh, so, but th there's a void there in, in the meantime while they're doing this. But the problem here is that uh, reforming the system, in, in some people's minds, simply means putting less money into it and making it less accessible and, and more difficult to qualify for. That's only creating a larger problem, isn't it? Yeah, and it's counterintuitive. If it creates that larger problem, it 
puts people deeper and deeper into poverty, and, and that has societal costs. We, we see the cost of homelessness directly on the streets. Uh, you know, we've seen more people um, sleeping rough uh, on our downtown streets, and, and that's just a reality of a broken social assistance system. We know when people are living in deep poverty, they're far more likely to get sick, and they're using our health care system. Uh, one day in the hospital costs probably about three times uh, what it would cost to, to keep somebody in affordable housing uh, for an entire month. So, you know, these are arguments that we really need to, to push back against because unless we invest in people living in poverty, they're never going to be able to break that cycle. So they, they're going to, they say, come up with some sort of an idea and some sort of a reform package right now. But, I mean, where do you go in a situation like this? And I, I, I'm not even going to try to get into their heads about what their priorities are. But, I mean, I, I just found it mind-boggling that the government makes this announcement to say we can't afford to do this anymore, so we're not going to spend that money on social assistance for helping people out in, on this. And the very next day they say, <laughs> but we're going to subsidize a buck of beer. We're going to... I mean, is is that really where we're going in this province right now? Where well, a, a buck of beer is is actually what we need to do? That's going to be a government priority, and not not helping people to to lift themselves out of poverty. Yeah, I I, I don't know if I can possibly respond to that, Bill, because you're right. Just the just you saying it out loud <laughs> just reminds me of how ludicrous it it truly is in a society where we have such deep inequality. Um, saying that you know reducing uh, reducing cans of beer to to a buck each is is something we need to put emphasis on. Why is it good to have socialism for beer, but uh, not for important programs like like health? But this or this is going to be government money. I mean, that's he said. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about it in the next hour. But they they have said that they're going to subsidize because I've talked to a number of people involved in craft breweries and. They, I, I saw one guy tweet earlier today. He said, "Yeah, I can offer you a buck of beer, but it's going to be a two ounce glass <laughs> because it costs money to make a quality product." Well, apparently that's not inconsequential. But you really have to wonder about the priorities right now. And and we know that when the Harris government slashed social service rates uh, arbitrarily back in 1995, it essentially created the food bank industry. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, they were there were one or two of those that we heard about. You know, in, in Toronto, they're rampant all over the place right now, and they're stretched to the limit right now because people are trying to get buy and feed their kids and at the same time try, try to work enough to pay for rent or whatever else might be. It just seems as if, uh, you know, we're, we're going right back into that situation again. Yeah, and look who's using the food banks. 70% of all people here in Hamilton, and its numbers are pretty stable across the province as well, 70% of all people going to food banks are actually on provincial social assistance programs. So either Ontario Works or Ontario Disability Support Program. So in a very, very real sense, this government is legislating hunger because of their inability and unwillingness to fix social assistance. Tom Cooper. Thomas, thanks as always for coming in. Obviously, this is not the end of the story. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the uh, campaign promises that uh, Doug Ford made during the provincial campaign uh, this spring was buck a beer. Now, that's not new to us here, especially in the Hamilton area, because uh, of course, uh, when Lakeport Brewery was still operating here in Hamilton, uh, Teresa Cascioli uh, and uh, that company uh, offered Buck a beer, and it was a very, very effective uh, marketing ploy, obviously, and did very well for Lakeport. Uh, and and the, the price of beer, of course, has gone up. And I know there was a great deal of controversy and angst uh, when the, uh, the, the Liberal government back in 2008 actually increased the minimum price of beer for what they called a socially responsible reason. In other words, they thought it would deter people from actually buying beer. Uh, which obviously did not work. But uh, Doug Ford obviously climbed on board with uh, that sort of an idea and said, look, we're going to bring back Buck a beer. Now, there has been some consideration and some uh, some speculation about how this was going to be get rolled out because at the time uh, Ford said, that, look, it, we're going to offer subsidies. We're going to offer incentives to the breweries to do this. Well, they made the announcement uh, just a, about an hour or so ago at a craft brewery, and uh, the Premier had this to say. We are putting the challenge out there for every brewer, big and small, that's all 260 brewers in Ontario. Bring your price down to a dollar in time for August 27th. So it's it's actually a call to do this. It's not mandated. It's not going to be legislated. Uh, and uh, I guess the obvious question we as consumers would want to have about this is, why would they want to do this? I mean, what's the, what's the incentive, I guess, to lower this? Uh, and then, of course, there is the concern about revenue. I mean, let's face it, there are taxes on, on alcoholic beverages. 
Uh, the government, the Ontario government, brings in about $589 million uh, annually uh, as a revenue source, and if they lower the prices, that could have an impact. Well, Finance Minister Vic Fidelli, who was also on hand for the announcement, had this to say. Does this not cut into the government revenues by lowering uh, beer to a dollar? Go ahead. Uh, once again, there are no uh, financial incentives. The, the tax portion of the beer is not being reduced. The Premier is asking the beer producers to uh, lower their price uh, of beer to, down to a dollar. So the legislation has reduced the floor to allow beer producers. Before, before uh, this morning, beer producers were not allowed to sell their product for a dollar. So what we're doing is giving them permission to sell their product for a dollar. We're not reducing the tax level. All right, so that's a clarification about the tax revenue, and that, and that's wonderful. But it still uh, raises, I guess, the overriding question about why brewers would want to do this. Uh, I mean, the, the industry has changed, obviously. I mean, since the Liberals uh, raised the price of beer back in 2008, uh, there were some craft breweries going on back in those days. But, I mean, they have really flourished. A number of them have, actually, in the last number of years. I mean, we've seen a number of them here in the Hamilton area. And just about every other uh, community now has uh, craft breweries that are working. And, and quite frankly, they're starting to take up a significant amount of the, of the market share. I mean, the big guys are, are still there, obviously, Molson's and Coors and all these sorts of other uh, brag, big international brand names. But craft breweries have become a rather important part of this. And, and I know some of the people that are in the industry. Uh, and they're fabulous entrepreneurs that have decided to take a, a shot at this. And uh, they make quality products. I mean, some of these uh, craft beers... Uh, here in Ontario, have been award-winning enterprises uh, because of the work that they've done, and, and the, the locals obviously have uh, decided to pick up and support this. But it costs money. It costs money to buy the equipment. It costs money to make the beer. And uh, obviously, these this is not a charity enterprise. I mean, these people are in the business to try to make up a couple of bucks. I mean, they want a quality product, and you have to charge for it, right? I mean, you can get a buck for a, a bottle of wine if you want to, but you have to ask yourself what kind of quality you're going to get. So the overriding concern now is why would these brewers decide to lower the price to a buck a bottle? Well, there are some concerns about that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Still trying to get some clarity about uh, the, the buck a beer announcement that, that, that Premier Ford made just a, a little while ago, but an hour or so ago. Uh, last week when he was talking about this, and even during the campaign, they talked about uh, offering incentives uh, to some of the breweries to actually lower the price to a buck a bottle. Uh, but there are some qualifiers for that, and now today we're not so sure, but the announcement uh, made by the Premier and by Finance Minister Vic Fidelli didn't really talk about that. Uh, I want to bring uh, John Romano into the conversation. John, of course, is the owner of Nickelbrook and, uh, and a bitter, better breweries, of course, uh, one of the great success stories with uh, microbreweries here in the Hamilton area, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. John, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning. Let's let's talk a little bit about this. Now, you're in the industry. You're obviously going to be impacted by this. Uh, do you have any idea at all about what the government's attempting to do and, and how this is going to impact your business? Well, you know, oddly enough, you've got to look at the past here. Uh, look what happened to Lakeport. You know, several years ago, you know, one of the big conglomerates buys Lakeport for excess of $200 million to shut it down and basically almost destroys the building, which we went into with the Arts and Science Brewery with, with Collective. And the main reason they did is because, it, you know, the beer industry is already a tough racket. And when you're in that high-level production, you're paying 50% to the government already. So if you look at a case of beer right now, if you've paid 36.95 for a case of beer, half of it is going to the government. On top of that, you have a bottle, a label, a cap, a box, you know, you got shipping, you know, distribution. There, there's not a, a, a lot of money left. So the only way this could be done is if the government reduces the taxes that breweries pay. And, you know, from what I know, as little as I know about, you know, the finance side of the beer world, the government's making about a billion dollars in tax revenues in the province of Ontario alone. That's the numbers I've been given in the past. So for them you know, to, to back that out, that money's got to come from somewhere else as well. And when they had a buck of beer, it got so bad that 30% and at times more, the beer being purchased by the general consumer was the 24 for 24 beers that some of the breweries were, were doing. And Lakeport, of course, was, you know, the kingpin there. And then a lot of them followed. 
but they didn't follow because they wanted to. They followed because they didn't. They had no choice. So yeah, he can bring back a buck of beer, but he's got to you know carve back the taxes that are being paid on beer. So this is a big loaded question. When I heard him say that you know weeks ago, I was like, wow. Uh, does he realize what he's got to do to make that happen? Because I can't produce beer for a dollar with the taxes I'm paying. There's just no way. Well, John, and that's that's the uh, the essence of uh, I think of the concern a lot of us have. Uh, and, and look at I'm I like everybody else. I like a nice tall cold one on a hot summer day. And 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 you make a great product. And there's a lot of other great uh, breweries around that are doing similar things these days. But at the same time, as, as you've just articulated, it costs money to produce this stuff. I mean, you, you've talked about, obviously, the cost of the bottle. Yeah, there's a deposit that we pay as consumers. We get that. But you've got to market. I mean, you've got to sell your product, right? I mean, you've got to let people know where it is and what it's all about. That costs money. Uh, and those are oh, the things, those are the things that help. Is the killer. Yeah, well, and that, that helps. That really determines how much you can charge. I mean, you, you, and this is not a charity event. I mean, you're, you're trying to make a couple of bucks off this as well as making a quality product. And, and I don't think the government seems to understand that, that, that you've got expenses, and that's all reflected in the price of a bottle of beer. Yeah, and the only way we can get to that dollar of beer, and, and beer's uh, taxes have increased on beer probably about four or five times since Buck of Beer's gone away. There's been an increase in the Ministry of Finance portion of taxes paid to beer you know, every spring. And, you know, it, so it's gotten worse and worse. And we've eaten a lot of it up over the past few years. And, you know, that, that can't continue to happen. So, yeah, he, if he wants that to happen, if he eliminated, you know, a majority of the taxes that on beer, yeah, we can produce a decent beer for a dollar a bottle. But uh, we've got to eliminate a lot of numbers here. Well, and that's that's one of the things that I think a lot of people are kind of uh, concerned about here and, and scratching their heads about. I mean, the announcement that uh, that they made this morning, uh, John, uh, from the finance minister seems to indicate that no, they're not going to cut the revenue at all. They still want to get the money from you, but they want they they want to encourage. I think that was the word they used, John. Encourage you to drop it to a buck of beer. Yeah, that that we we never do it. There's no way we could do it. And, and I mean. You know, the- I, I mean, not without cutting back quality, and this is what people don't realize. Like, there, there's there's many ways to make beer, and and barley does not have to be one of them. So, if I started making beer from say extracts, then maybe I could get the price down that low. But as a craft brewer, we will never go to that level to to, to produce a, a beer. That's the whole idea of of craft. Like we're artisanal, we're true to the original history of beer making. And there are breweries that don't follow that. And maybe if they made a beer, all you know, a, a formulated beer of some sort, they could get the price down to that level. But I don't think you'll ever see a craft brewery or a good quality beer brewed at a dollar. There's just, there's, it's impossible. Not if the taxes are staying. The the other element to this too is is being competitive in a situation like this. And you talked about the the Lakeport experience, of course, in the bucket beer. And, and Teresa Cassioli had great success. Uh, although she told me, I mean, she knew that she couldn't do that long term. It was obviously to track market share, and it worked, and forced some of the other breweries to do this. But they're large; those are international companies. They they can take a hit for a little while. Uh, the the, yeah. the growth of craft breweries is all predicated on the fact that that you've got to get your niche, uh, John, and you've got to get people that are going to say, "I'm not going to go with those big companies. I want those local stuff because it's quality is is a, is a key word to this." But if you can't be competitive. Uh, I, I have to wonder about just how long-term you can stay in business. What's, what's the point, right? You, we need to make a dollar, and, you know, we hear it all the time, you know, do it for the exposure, do it for the brand awareness. Well, we've been at it 14 years. We've done enough of that, and we, we tried the buck of beer, and we've tried to discount our beers, and you're just, you're just fighting in a world that you're never going to win in because, like you said, we, we don't have the, the power and the money to, to continue that for any length of time, right? Well, and you, you know the the success that you've had over the last number of years, John, with uh, with what you've done with Nickelbrook, uh, and we've seen the growth of so many other ones. And I mean, there's a long list of them, of course. That and you know they, these these are some of your competitors, but I mean, you guys are all in the same business, and you understand the the pressure that's under you right now. Uh, I, I have to wonder about places like yours and 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 Bench, of course, down the peninsula and Side Lunch up in the Collingwood area. All these, you, you, I mean, you guys have been award winning breweries. I mean, you you pay a, a, a 
good buck for it, but you get a quality product for this. But I have to wonder just how competitive you can be against these international brands if you have to be forced to lower your price, which is obviously going to cut into your profit margin. All the breweries you mentioned, I'd be totally, totally shocked if anyone tried to enter that market. It's just not going to happen. The investments we have, the the quality that we put in, the ingredients we use, there's just no way we can produce that, you know, any type of beer, you know, that's any decent, you know, for, for that price. So that the only, like I said earlier, the only way is to cut corners and, and not follow the true meaning of, of beer brewing, which is, you know, you know, Bavarian Purity Act, and, you know, we're using only barley. So if I start using extracts and other stuff and cut down my production time and my cost of product and all that, you know, maybe I can do it, but I don't have the facility and, and the, the equipment to be banging out beer at that volume at that price. It's just not going to happen. It's like fast food and fine dining. So craft is fine dining, and you're not going to get, you know, a, a gourmet burger through a fast food joint, right? There's a, there's a big difference. And, you know, people are prepared to pay for quality and, and they do, right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And if Ford's not going to cut back the, the, the taxes, um, I can't see many people jumping on that. Well, the the bothersome thing from the announcement I heard today, though, John, that, that I would think would irk you guys too in in the business, is is he says he's challenging you to lower the bar. In other words, he seems to be indicating that look at <laughs> you guys arbitrarily raise the price of beer because of your your profit margin. It's it's provincial taxes which are driving this right now, and obviously the cost of doing business, uh, and and that's how you set your prices. I mean, there's there's no monopoly going on. There's nothing coercive going on no. right now. I mean, you know, the government wants to get their pockets fold out of the revenue that they get from from the sales of, of your product but at the same time they're, they're saying well you're the one that's going to have to take the hit for it now no i think anyway i have no problem with the price of beer you look at americans like I, I tell people that complain about it you know what most of the revenues from beer taxes are gas tax and you know tobacco and a lot of a lot of those revenues go to our health care, educational system, and we, we live in a great com- sure, country yeah. that we have access to all that. You look at Americans that don't have health care. Yeah, they can get beer for far less, but talk to someone that doesn't have health care and, and find out what they pay a month to give their family that opportunity. So I have no problem paying thirty six ninety five if the money's being used properly. And I don't think, you know, if, if the general population understands that, you know, I, I, think, I think they're fine. You know, how many cases of beer does the average consumer buy, in a, you know, in a month or a week? And when you look at it in proportion to what you would pay for health care. So I'm fine with that. But don't ask me to take the cut now because we, we've struggled to get where we are now. You know, our, our bottom line keeps shrinking with, you know, minimum wage goes up. Well, I don't pay minimum wage most of our staff, but you have to up everybody's wages because they can go down the road and work in, you know, a very simple operation and get minimum wage now so everybody's up four dollars the cost of fuel the cost of just operating you know hydro everything else is you know chunk you know nudging away and chipping away at that bottom line and now you want me to start making beer for a dollar and still pay you the taxes i have to pay you well i i I don't if you want to help me fund a brewery and 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 uh you know buy some equipment for me and stuff you know maybe we can talk but I, I'm I'm in no rush to join that world. Uh, we we did it for a little while out of the brewery because of Lakeport, but it, it's a tough market. Like if I had to put that beer in the liquor store, the beer store, and pay them their percentages, because on on top of the taxes, you have to pay fees at the LCBO to yeah. have your beer on the shelf. You have to pay um, fees at the brewer's retail. Plus, you have to pay fees to just get the beer registered. Right, like. There's fees just to enter into the beer store, and then you have your your general costs. So you take the taxes, what the LCBO or the brewer's retail takes, and what's left is not a lot. There's not a lot there. Exactly. And bottles are going up. Like people don't even realize. Like our bottles, we pay on average about twenty two cents for a beer bottle, and 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 we don't use industry standards. So we're paying twenty two cents a label, a cap, a box. Like, th- there's not a lot left to, to produce any beer. At exactly. That point, John, listen, keep, keep doing what you're doing, all right? And, and we'll, we'll let the government handle whatever they want to do. But uh, quality, uh, and you pay for quality. That's what it comes down to. i got to run. Thanks. Give, 
Thanks so Can much. You give Mr. Rob Ford a call. I, a yeah, day. I'll let you get on to that. You can make that phone call right now. John Romano from uh, Nickelbrook, of course. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.